Women of War is written and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and any First Nations listeners today. Sovereignty was never ceded. This podcast contains references to violence and atrocities committed against Indigenous men, women and children in Australia over the course of the last 200 years. It also contains references to disease, sexual coercion and sexual slavery, pedophilia, murder, execution, robbery and desecration of the dead. It also contains the names of Indigenous people who have passed away. It also contains some, of course, language, but you need to deal with that. It may not be suitable for all listeners. Welcome to Women of War. I'm Nicola. I am a humanities teacher. I'm very tall. I thought you were going to say you're a human then. I'm like, well, you're wrong. So sources say we're both human and don't live in buildings built by aliens. (laughs) But I apparently work in one. Anyway. Sorry, I interrupted you then. Who are you? I'm Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Uh, I am a historian. Yeah. I look at women who protested nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, I will finish a PhD one day. Yeah. Uh, I work in a museum. Yeah. That was built by aliens. Yeah. And cool. moving on. There's no context to this. Yeah, and today we are going to be sharing with you the story of Tragedidi, a Nuinon woman who found her own way to deal with the horrors of colonisation in Lutruwita, which we now know more today as Tasmania. Oh, we're going straight into it today, aren't we? Yeah, we are. Yeah. Because it's a long episode. We've got a lot to get through. Hurry, let's back up. All right. <laughs> so if you grew up in Australia... You might have heard of Truganini as, quote, the last Aboriginal Tasmanian, end quote, or, quote, the last full-blooded Aboriginal Tasmanian, end quote. Both of these are wrong uh, for many reasons. Number one being there's still many, many Indigenous Tasmanians living today in Tasmania and everywhere else. Secondly, blood quantums are not used as a classification of Aboriginality in Australia. Yeah, as a lot of Indigenous people who are, like, lighter-skinned put online and stuff, mm. and, like, you know, they're like, you know what, you can have a cup of tea and there can be milk in it, but yeah. at the end of the day, it's still a cup of tea. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't like matter what colour it is. And, like, related terms like half-blood, full-blood, half-caste, etc., came from colonisers and were used as part of the colonial apparatus. So we are ignoring that because colonists suck. Yeah! <laughs> I don't know, we're both colon... Anyway... So, anyway, even though this is very quantifiably false, uh, Truganini as the last Tasmanian Aboriginal was a myth taught in schools in Australia, at least until the 70s. So because of all this, a lot of people still believe this as a myth. Um, So I've been reading the recent Truganini biography by Cassandra Pibus while I've been researching this episode. And I've been reading it, like, out and about, like, on the train, at work, whatever. I leave whatever. the house, me. You leave the house more than me. I know, but I go to, like, the one place. Um, it's been kind of interesting to see what people say when they see the book, um, because people haven't heard of her, who Truganini is. People are like, mm. so there's a suburb in Melbourne called Truganina, and people are like, oh, is that a history of the suburb? I'm like, no. But that would be very interesting, because the west of Melbourne is the best of Melbourne, so... Don't pull get, that face. Get like, out of my house. Sunshine. Fuck you. There's not enough trees over there. I. That's not their fault. Anyway, no, but I don't want to live. What there. else do people assume trees. when they see you reading the Truganini biography, Hannah? People assume it was about a man. Oh uh, yeah. Um. So they're like, who is he? Um. Like, not he. And they're like, oh. <gasps> I get a lot of white. There was a lot of white guilt responses, but like not real white guilt. Just kind of like a, oh, it's terrible what we did to those Aboriginal people. I'm like, yes, it's terrible what we continue to do as a colonial society, but okay. 
Um, and then other people who have listened to the podcast are like, oh, you did an episode on her already. I'm like, no, no, that was Tara Nora. And that's also, that was Nicola. So um, <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> so, yeah, lots of different responses. Yeah, so despite Trungadini actually being one of the most documented Indigenous Tasmanians, finding and telling her story is actually really difficult. She left no documents of her own, and most of what we know relies on the European accounts from the colonists, who, I don't want to shock you, they saw Trungadini and her companions through their own biased perspective. <gasps> the source has bias. No, really? So for this episode, Hannah relied. Hannah wrote this. So Hannah relied particularly on <laughs> Cassandra Pybus's recent award-winning biography of Trogonini. Pybus is a descendant of one of the men who colonized Trogonini's homeland, and she is very conscious of the problems that come from the historical sources available. She is aware the source has bias, but it is the only sources we have, so mm-hmm. you do have to work with the materials you're given. Pybus writes that Trogonini is often quote. Seen through the prism of a colonial imperative, a rueful backward glance at the last tragic victim of an inexorable historical process, end quote. So George Robinson's diaries provide the largest account of Trogadini's life. Um, have we said who Robinson is? No. No, you haven't. Good job, Hannah. So Robins- Wait, Hannah, who is this George Robinson chap? So George Robinson is a white saviour. We'll get into like more background of him, but he appointed himself as sort of like a prote- like a quote protector of Aboriginal people, the Christian protector. Yeah, um, so he kind of was like, "I will help the people that don't want my help." So yeah, so there's more biography in him later, but yeah, yeah, he was one of the colonial authorities essentially. So his diaries really where we get a lot of the stuff about Trogonini's life because she was a companion of his for a very long time, over a decade. So his diaries are also limited by Robinson's own lack of attention and awareness um, and his kind of self-aggrandizing vision of his mission. Um, And so he doesn't talk a lot about the companions he was travelling with. Um, He spends more time talking about the Aboriginal men he was travelling with rather than Trogonini, even though she was probably the most constant companion that he was with. So, as Cassandra Pybus writes, quote, There is no escaping the limitations placed on our understanding of the past by the callous indifference of colonial society to the people it usurped and replaced. Trocanini and her companions are only available to us through the gaze of pompous, partisan, acquisitive, self-aggrandizing men who controlled and directed the context of what they described. End quote. Good quote. It is. That's why I put it in. So, in the biography that... Cassandra Pappas wrote, she challenged herself to kind of try and bring Truganini to the front of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we've challenged ourselves to do that here too. As much as we can, it's a very complicated process. It's li- a literal reading between the lines yeah. in a lot of places. Yeah. yeah. So, Truganini was born around 1812 at the lower southeast coast of Lutruita at Lailatea, which was renamed Recherche Bay, probably, after the arrival of the French in the late 1790s. Tranganini was born into the Nuanon clan, the youngest lead, the youngest daughter of Nuanon leader, Manganara. The world that Tranganini was born into was rapidly changing, as it always is. In 1777, Captain James Cook, may he rest in the tum-tums of the people who <laughs> ate him, which he deserved, sailed into the waters around Lailatea and uh, seeing an apparent welcoming party of Nuanon people believed they were very happy to give up their land. Because everyone knows when you're in your front yard and you wave at somebody going by... You're, you're offering actually, them your house. Yes. That's how it works. Yes. Why don't uh, I have a house then? 
I know, right? Ridiculous. In 1788, the British claimed Lutruida, known at that time as Van Diemen's Land, after the Dutch governor of the Dutch East Indies as part of the British colony of New South Wales. Logic. The first Europeans on the island were sealers, who began hunting and trading in the late 1790s. In 1803, the British established the first of a series of military outposts on the Derwent River in an attempt to prevent French colonisation of the island. A year later, the British founded the capital city of Hobart, blatantly ignoring the roughly 3,000 to 15,000 Palawa people living on the island. This sparked conflicts between the British and the local First Nations people who had been there for 60,000 years before Hobart was established. At, at the very least. At the very least. Well, I think we're up to 70,000 now. But yeah. that was in Western Australia, so they might not have made it down there by then. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. Oh, before... I think we forgot to say this before. Palawa... Is like the collective reference. It is not the name of every indigenous group that was in Tasmania. It's just a name that a lot of people, First Nation people in Tasmania, like to use as the collective for all the different tribal groups and nation groups. Yes. Like we sometimes say the Kulin Nation versus the Wurundjeri people. So Palawa is the kind of more collective term for First Nations people in Tasmania. Yeah. And then individual groups like the Nuanon and others that yeah. we'll come across later in the episode. The first governor of Van Diemen's Land arrived in 1804 with instructions to punish violence against Aboriginal people, but with no clear instructions on how British attackers should be punished, leaving it up to interpretation and thus making it an ineffective, inefficient and uneven system. So between 1803 and 1853, over 70,000 convicts were transported to Van Diemen's Land, many to Port Arthur, just up the coast from Hobart. So if you fucked up in New South Wales, I took you to Van Diemen's Land. Yeah, that was like the ultimate bad place to end up. Yeah. So if you fucked up as a convict somewhere else, that's where you ended up. Huh, our prison needs a prison. Pretty much. The island within the island. So violence between colonists and First Nations groups increased as British colonisation increasingly encroached upon kangaroo hunting lands and, you know, where they were living. Yeah. Funny that. Water supply. Yeah. Yeah. So not only did the British establish penal settlements, but they appropriated land for farming, bringing in cattle and sheep, which are terrible for the native Australian environment. In the early 1820s, the British opened up the land for free settlers to buy land grants and establish farms. So the population then exploded from around 7,185 people, you know, white people, in 1821 to 24,279 in 1830. By 1823, 30% of Van Diemen's land was claimed by the British, often through violent attacks on the people already living on the land. So these British attacks on Palawa groups were repaid by attacks on colonists' livestock and settlements. The colony employed large numbers of military police to officially control the large numbers of convicts, um, but the presence on the island of these military officers only increased tensions and violence. In 1825, Van Diemen's Land became a colony separate from New South Wales, and this sparked increased violence between the British colonists and the Palawa. Increased numbers of colonists were thrown into this tense mix. Palawa attacks on settlers' livestock and homes rose as they were further forced from their land. Colonists attacked First Nations groups for revenge, for fun, for labourers or for sexual conquest. This then led to further retaliation from First Nations people, and so on it went in a vicious cycle. The new governor of Van Diemen's Land, George Arthur, declared that Aboriginal people were under British protection and promised to punish any colonists who committed violence against them. However, the violence did not abate, and colonial figures increasingly called for a stricter response to Aboriginal attacks, including forcibly removing the remaining Palawa to islands in the Bass Strait between Australia, mainland, and Tasmania. Or Lutorita, sorry. In 1826, Arthur issued a new decree which legitimised colonist attacks on Indigenous people as a sort of, air quotes, self-defence. 
If a colonist had been attacked by First Nations people, he could respond in kind. Shockingly, this did not curb the violence. I'm so shocked. First Nations groups continued to attack settlers either as revenge or to scare them away from the hunting grounds. Colonists responded by launching hunting parties and killing First Nations people they found en masse. So historians estimate that between 1826 and 1828, the ratio of First Nations deaths to colonists' deaths was nearly 5 to 1. Inquests reveal that there are around 61 colonists killed in First Nations attacks. Um, There were no inquests into First Nations deaths from colonists' attacks. No known inquests. You never know. Well, there's no documented inquests, and inquests generally create a lot of documentation. I know, but I'm used to to things catching fire, to be honest. (laughs) That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But with evidence from settler memoirs, references in newspapers, diaries, oral histories... Uh, it suggests that there are at least 260 First Nations people killed in that same period. So 61 to 260 is the is the rough kind of um, estimate. Estimate, yeah. So while Palawalet attacks were often small-scale daytime attacks on one or two colonists, colonist attacks on Palawa people were nighttime ambushes where groups of five or more were killed. So it's very uneven. In April 1828, the colonial governments declared Van Diemen's land would be set, divided between settled districts and unsettled districts. First Nations people were officially excluded from settled districts and the government set up military posts along the border to expel any First Nations people and capture any that illegally entered a settled district. Over the next winter, the attacks against colonists seemed to have stopped and it appeared the district system seemed to work. I thought that in the Hunger Games too. (laughs) In October, however, there were several attacks on colonists and their families, likely in retaliation for a colonist attack on two Indigenous women. So regardless of the reasoning, these attacks against colonists were the catalyst for a declaration of martial law in the settled districts. This would last for three years, which is the longest period of martial law in Australian history. And it gave the military personnel permission to kill on site any First Nations person found in a settled district. So Governor Arthur wrote to colonial officials in 1828, quote, We are undoubtedly the first aggressors and the desperate characters among the, amongst the prisoner population who have from time to time absconded into the woods have no doubt committed the greatest outrages upon the natives. And these ignorant beings, incapable of discrimination, are now filled with enmity and revenge against the whole body of white inhabitants. It is perhaps at this time in vain to trace the cause of the evil which exists. My duty is plainly to remove its effects, and there does not appear any practical method of accomplishing this measure, short of entirely prohibiting the Aborigines from entering the settled districts. End quote. So, you know... Nice there how he places blame on the convicts and not the free settlers for the first attacks. And also his paternalist portrayal of the poor quote-unquote savages who are unable to distinguish between the good whites and the bad whites. It's almost like, you know... When when you're invading their island, man, you're, you're all, all the bad, bad ones. Mm-hmm. Are we the baddies? Yes, Arthur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so don't let Arthur's sugar-coated version of the situation fool you. This was an active attack on First Nations people. Not only were the military allowed to kill any Indigenous person they found, soldiers were ordered to go out in small groups to search for First Nations people in the settled districts to kill or capture. And it was ridiculously easy for Indigenous people to end up in the settled districts because they didn't have clear boundaries. There was no handy fence. Like the Hunger Games. (laughs) So by March 1829, around 200 armed men in small groups were roving, searching for Indigenous people. 
In September that year, for example, a government roving party led by John Batman... John Batman! I know, remember that name. ...attacked an Aboriginal camp at dawn, killing at least 17 of the approximately 60 to 70 people in the camp. An incentive for capture was added a year later in 1830, with colonists awarded £5 for every adult uh, Palawa captured and £2 for every child. In March 1830, Arthur formed a committee to investigate the reasons behind Aboriginal animosity, which, you know, of course, so unclear why they were doing this. Mm. The committee's report concluded that First Nations people had, quote, lost the sense of superiority of white men, end quote, and recommended increased patrols. Arthur forwarded the report to colonial authorities, again putting the blame for any attacks by white people on convicts, and now arguing, quote, it is increasingly apparent the Aboriginal natives of this colony are, and have ever been, a most treacherous race, and that the kindness and humanity which they have always experienced from the free settlers has not tended to civilise them to any degree, end quote. If you did listen to our Taranora episode in Season 1, you know what's coming next in 1830. Between October and November, 2,000 armed colonists, soldiers and convicts formed the Black Line, a long line that aimed to systematically sweep across the entire island and remove any First Nations people found in the settled districts. This process took five weeks and found four people. Get wrecked. Yeah. So it was far more... They were far more... Palawa people are far more comfortable in the landscape than the colonists, so it was very easy for Indigenous people to evade the blundering black line. The press declared it a failure, but ultimately the line did succeed in pushing Indigenous people out of the settled districts. By 1831, historians estimate that 22% of the Palawa population of Luturita had been killed by colonists. That is, well, to put that in perspective, the current population of Melbourne is about 5 million, and if 22% of Melbourne were killed, that is 1.1 million people dead. So while this war was going on, George Augustus Robinson was taking a different approach to the so-called Aboriginal threat. In 1829, Robinson was appointed as a storekeeper on Lunawana Alona, now named Bruni Island, tasked with distributing rations to the local Nuanon population. This rationing system was part of broader attempts to, quote, civilise the Indigenous population, which might seem nicer than outright murder, but is still an act of cultural genocide. Robinson, a committed Methodist, was happy to take on this mission to try and teach Christianity and civilization to the local people. Mm-hmm. Lunawana Alona was the home of the Nuanon clan. The island sits off the southeast coast of Lutruwita and is a mix of rugged cliffs, sheltered shorelines, and inland eucalypt forests. Prior to the British invasion, the Nuanon carefully cultivated the land, regularly burning forests to provide wallaby and wallaby hunting grounds, and smaller family groups would journey up and down the island, camping on the way to gather food at these different sites. So, if you've read Dark Emu, you can see this is a form of cult- land cultivation and farming that obviously wouldn't be recognised by Europeans. Campsites were constructed using domed shelters made from branches, bark and grass. The Nuanon people also took advantage of the abundant food sources on the island, hunting fur seals just off the coast, diving deep for crayfish and abalone, and collecting oysters, mussels and mutton birds. As part of the larger language group spanning onto Lutruwita mainland, the Nuanon would also regularly journey across the state to visit the Melakiri and the Lilakwani on Lutruwita's southeast coast. They would also walk across the main island to visit the Wandi and Ninini on the west coast. During a year, the Nuanon would meet up with these other clans for various ceremonies. Okay, so now I want to give an example of how this history is still erased. <gasps> so Source analysis. I know. When I went to find out the climate of Lunawana Alona or Bruni Island, I came across the official Bruni Island tourist site. 
So I had low expectations of the tourist site, discussing an uncomfortable history. I mean, you know, their aim is to encourage people to come to the island. But the website saw the low bar that I'd set and went and got their shovel. There's gold under (laughs) this here rock. So it appears the island's tagline, which is right at the top of the homepage, is, quote, Bruni Island, your very own treasure island, end quote, which is problematic concept number one, because the colonizers saw First Nations land exactly as their own uninhabited island of undiscovered treasures. Um, So then underneath this is a blurb about the island's tourist offerings, including, quote, being the home of beautiful South Bruni National Park, Bruni Island provides the ultimate Tasmanian wilderness experience, end quote. I do not want to experience a Tasmanian wilderness anyway. (laughs) Which, you know, might seem harmless, um, but again, concept of undiscovered wilderness Mm. takes back to the colonial appropriation of Australian land being because no one was using it. Or the erasure of just Indigenous knowledge of the land. Yeah, exactly. And then finally, (laughs) this is the the real clinger, in an quote... In addition to stunning scenery, Bruni Island is a foodie's paradise. Hunt and gather the island's delicious local produce at the farm gate and cellar doors, end quote. Which is a big oof from me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they could have used any phrase to talk about, like, finding local artisan food, but they went with the very loaded hunt and gather, which is a term that has been used to describe so-called, like, primitive lifestyles, and which some people still use as an excuse for why First Nations people deserve to have their land taken because they weren't using it correctly. Air quotes correctly. Yes, exactly. So nowhere on the website does it mention the Nguyenon people having lived on the island for centuries before Europeans arrived, even though two of the towns are named Alona and Lunawana. Adventure Bay, however, does get a little blurb about how it was named after Captain Tobias Furno's ship, The Adventure, which of part of Captain Cook's May He Rest in Agony journey. Yeah. So it's just interesting the bits that they chose to focus on in the history and chose not to focus mm. on. Like, you, it's a tourist site. You, you, you don't want to be like, look at all the genocide. But you can still, I feel, acknowledge the history. And I don't see why you can't be like, there's this continuing history here of yeah. people living here. Like, even if you don't want to go into all the politics and political yeah. correctness, quotes, you know, like... It's more just the thoughtlessness of stuff like hunting yeah. together. Because you know they weren't actually thinking of it like that. They no, were they like, weren't. It, it wasn't yeah. like a conscious thing, but it's just like all these unconscious word choices they have yeah. that are just so dismissive of mm. the real complex history of the place. By the time Robinson arrived on Luna Wana Alana in March 1829, the Nuanon were, understandably, wary of Europeans. Like the First Nations peoples on the main island of Tasmania, the Nuanon had suffered greatly at the hands of Europeans. Lunawana Alana was also on the route into the Derwent River and towards Hobart. Supply ships regularly passed the islands and it soon became a haunt for escaped convicts to hide out in and perhaps eat each other. Former convicts and British Army deserters also took to seal hunting along the southeastern coast of Australia and would regularly attack First Nations groups to kidnap women, women to use their seal hunting expertise and for sexual exploitation. Tregonini's mother was violently killed in one such attack when Tregonini was four or five, and later her older sisters were taken by sealers too. By 1818, British colonists were given land grants to Lunawana Alana for farming. These farms made use of convict labour, and the convicts, brutalised by the horrific treatments of the colonial penal system, would then use their relative freedom on the farms to hunt wild game, and if any Nuanon got in the way, that didn't concern the convicts. And, as in other war zones, the invaders used their food and supplies to force Nuanon women into sexual relationships. 
By the early 1820s, indiscriminate seal hunting had wiped out the seal population. Which, again, shows the skill a lot of the Indigenous people had because they knew how much to take and mm. how much to leave and who to take and who to leave. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so the hunters moved to hunting the southern right whales that migrated past Lunawana Alona every year. So whaling stations were established and more colonists and convict workers came to the island. With more men and more supplies, sexual trade between colonists and the new one thrived, and Truganini used sexual favours to help feed her family. So all this brings us to 1828 and the declaration of martial law on Van Diemen's land. Martial law was never declared on Lunawana Alona. For the colonisers, the Nuanon people were what the First Nations people should be. Friendly, helpful and peaceful were these kind British whites bringing them Christianity and civilisation. Oh, isn't it sweet? When Robinson began his journey, he met Truganini, who was being kept by a gang of convict woodcutters in Birch's Bay, across the channel from Lunawana Alona, so on the mainland. Robinson was impressed by her English speaking and her intelligence and decided to take her back to her home. On the island, Robinson was granted 500 acres, which he named Missionary Bay, and where he intended to build a Christian community to civilise the Nuanon. Robinson knew that his best chance to entice the Nuanon was to join up was to get the leader Manga, Manganera on his side, and Robinson calculated the best way to do this was to have Truganini under his wing. With Truganini living at Missionary Bay, Manganera and his second wife and young son moved to join her. Is she married to Manganera? No, that's her dad. Oh, Manganera <laughs> is Truganini's dad. And so obviously when her father heard about his daughter living at Missionary Bay, he was like, you know what? I guess we're going. Yep. Um, and of course it was his second wife because his first wife, Truganini's mother, had been murdered. And his two elder daughters had been kidnapped. Yeah, but they weren't his wives. No, but like... His, his... Let me find the humour here. I've got to dig down low in the dark, but I can find it somewhere. <laughs> I promise. I'm real sorry. Following Manganera, around a dozen... Oh, that's how you fucking say it. Thanks for letting me know. All right. You didn't ask. <laughs> you just watched me suffer. Not even suffer, just struggle. Following Manganera... Ban- oh, Manganera. Around a dozen new and people moved to Missionary Bay. Perhaps enticed by the daily ration of biscuits and potatoes. At Missionary Bay, Robinson did his best to enforce good Christian values. Good Christian values! He tried to get Truganini to be virtuous and chaste by wearing a smock made of blankets. Truganini preferred to be naked, which valid. In Tasmania? Brave woman. I mean, blankets, you know they're going to be itchy. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like, if he'd given her, like, a possum skin cloak, she probably would have worn it. But, yeah, it's probably an itchy Hessian blanket sack. Yeah, Yeah. and she's just doing what she wants to do. Yeah. Which is valid. Robinson tried to teach the Nuanon about Christianity and to show them the dangers of the devil by appropriating their own beliefs about the evil force of Rajwara. He saw it as his mission to bring these, in his view, savage and ignorant people to the light of Christianity. Just as important as being good Christians was being good civilised people who wore clothes, lived in houses and grew potatoes. Perhaps most important, good civilised people worked hard for the money, just as the Protestant work ethic said. Robinson tried to entice the Nuanon to work by providing them with rations of meat, tea and sugar. But the Nuanon weren't stupid. They knew they could get their own meat and could get tea and sugar elsewhere without having to be Robinson's dolls. Robinson's failure to build his perfect Christian community made him the object of ridicule on Lunawana Alona and also in Hobart. Also, this idea of Christianity as a civilising force persists today. Like, just look at that idiot American who was brainwashed and got shot on um, Sentinelese yeah. Island. Yeah. Yeah, it's dangerous. 
Dragonini spent her time at Missionary Bay, living her best life, collecting fruits, making wallaby skin cloaks and pouches, weaving baskets, making shell necklaces, and diving for shellfish, presumably abalone as well. Are they a shellfish? Yes. Yes. She, fu- she fucking loved doing all this. This oh. was like her favourite thing to do. Yeah, it's an yeah. important... And also, I know the indigenous women would smear themselves with um, fat to keep warm in the water because it's fucking freezing. Mm-hmm. Abalone is still a massively important industry in Tasmania. Robinson saw Truganini's crafts as a way to make money through cottage industry. By May, more First Nations people had come to Missionary Bay. Truganini was joined by Dre, a Laurina woman. Manganara was joined by Waredi, a Nuanon elder from the south part of Lunawana Alona. Waredi, who had been born over a decade before the first colonists arrived on the island, decided to pull the reverse Uno card and, for some reason, be generous and kind and teach Robinson about Nuanon life. Or it could have been an attempt to be like, hey, dude, we have our own fucking culture and beliefs. Bitch. Robinson got t- treated way better than he should have been. Yeah. Um, like, the dignity and patience yeah. that he did not deserve. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he was treated with respect that he did not earn. I mean, it's not like Trogonese going to save his life by jumping in a river or anything. <laughs> Someone's read the script. Robinson was disheartened when, by August, nearly all of the new Anon who had moved to Missionary Bay had left again. As soon as whaling season began, Truganini and Dre left Robinson to join up with the whalers. And when he tried to get them back, the women, women ran away from him. Which I feel like really says something about what it was like living with Robinson, because <laughs> on one hand, you have the whalers, who expected sexual favours and could, and often did, use force on the women. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you have the preachy white guy who's trying to force you to change everything about who you are to fit in with his worldviews. And well, they didn't choose the preachy white guy. Well, there is also the option that he didn't write in his diary that he was doing the exact same thing. Yeah, there, there is that, like, yep. it's probably not. Must be nice. Because, so the way he wrote about Truganini was very much paternalistic. And, like, I know that doesn't exclude anything, yeah. but the way he wrote about in her, her in his diary um, and, and all the other, um, you know, First Nations people he was in contact with indicates he saw them as children. So, stop making that face at me, Nicola. <laughs> Again, doesn't exclude anything, but he's not writing about them in any way that indicates this is happening. And it's not like. It's not something he would have likely censored either. Okay. Because why would he? It's his diary about how he's seeing things. He talks about, like, sexual exploitation and stuff. Okay, yeah. In the diary. Um, and so it's unlikely, again, you can never know, mm. like with all these sorts of things, like all, with all of history, you can never know, but it's unlikely. I hope it was. Yeah. Yeah. Tragedy after tragedy stu- struck the new one on. First in September, Wuredi's pregnant wife and youngest son, as well as a group of Nini, Nanani, I'm so sorry, Tasmanian people, who were visiting their new one on kin, were all killed, possibly in a fire. The same month, convict mutineers took control of the Cyprus ship and abducted Manganara's second wife. So this is Truganini's stepmother, basically. Yes. Manganara attempted to follow them to New Zealand in his canoe with his son, but they got blown off course. His son died and Manganara nearly died from dehydration. People have tried to canoe to New Zealand now and they've all died, so, you know. Then influenza swept through the Nuanon population and with little natural immunity, it killed many. The few survivors were overcome with grief. 
Now, as we discussed in our episode on Taranara, Indigenous Tasmanians practice cremation, usually, of their dead. So they attempted to cremate their dead, and then they would collect the ashes and bone relics to wear in remembrance. But after the flu, there weren't enough fit and healthy people to complete the rituals, and so Missionary Bay became this apocalyptic landscape with half-burnt bodies being eaten by abandoned dogs. Robinson's vision for Missionary Bay was not doing so great. Manganara died a few months later from venereal disease, likely syphilis, and already was the only senior Nuanon man alive and able-bodied living at Missionary Bay. Robinson turned to Already as the way to reverse the fortunes of his civilising mission. Already, for his part, was looking for a new wife and set his sights on Truganini, who was still living with the Whalers. Already would help Robinson if Robinson got Truganini back from the Whalers. Robinson wrote angry letters to the Whalers demanding their return Truganini to no avail. <laughs> I can't read this, said the Whalers probably. <laughs> When the Whalers left at the end of the season, Truganini Dre and another young woman, Padgley, still did not return to Missionary Bay and instead travelled to a nearby farm, suffering greatly from venereal disease, again probably syphilis. It was not until October that Manganara, before he died, was able to bring the women back to Missionary Bay after their symptoms had eased, likely because the disease had entered its dormant phase. And it can stay in the dormant phase for decades. Yes. So, yeah. We're going to come back to that. Truganini only returned to Missionary Bay reluctantly because her father had requested it. Truganini refused to marry Wiredi, but he was not deterred, and eventually, in October 1829, Truganini relented. Woredi credited Robinson with getting Truganini back, and Robinson, now feeling Woredi was grateful enough to help, decided to leave the absolute failure of Missionary Bay and go over the southern tip of Lutruwita on a civilising mission, collecting and converting Palawa people on his way. Truganini and Woredi were central to his vision, as they could navigate and could speak to the Palawa people they encountered. When her father died in early 1830, Truganini looked to Robinson as a new father figure, and so she agreed to join his expedition. At this point, too, I want to make it clear, Robinson has not got any official direction to do this. Oh, he's just chilling. This is Robinson being like, I want to do it. Yeah. Like, this is what a, what a fully guy. on him. Yeah. <laughs> what a punk-ass bitch. So in January 1830, Robinson and his party arrived at Recherche Bay to begin their their journey to the main island. They were joined by five or six Paloma men who had been in jail after being captured by the roving parties. One of these was Kiktapola, a Padarimi man in his early 20s who had fought in the guerrilla war until he was captured in 1824. Another was 14-year-old Morbohina from the Paimere Enapernerna clan. The group was also joined by some convicts who carried guns for protection. The party set off on the 3rd of February 1830, with Robinson estimating it would take them three days to walk their walk to their destination of Port Davy on the west coast. So they're on the east coast, they're going to walk across to the west coast. West side! So, you know, good job, Robinson. The group almost found themselves immediately in a peat bog, though presumably there were no Germanic seeresses hanging out in this one. Just the ghost of one. Uh, which significantly slowed their process. Then, once they'd made it through that, they were slowed by dense eucalypt scrub. Though there had been regular travel across this part of Lutruita before colonisation, the martial law and roving parties had effectively stopped the regular migration between the Nanine and Nuanon people. As anyone who's gone for a bushwalk in Australia would know, underused tracks can very quickly become overgrown and hard to follow. The Lutruita landscape that had been so carefully maintained by Palawa people before colonisation and was now left to do whatever it felt like, and the journey suddenly became a lot harder. At times, the party were forced to crawl on their hands and knees to make progress. They quickly ran out of supplies, 
and Robertson was forced to accept that maybe his guides did know best. Allowing Wiradri and Kiktapala to set the pace and spend time hunting for food, the party went slowly over the next six weeks. So it was going to take three days, it took six weeks. Yep. Truganini and Dre spent their time diving for crayfish, oysters and abalone and collecting wild fruits. At night, and you can bet that the um, British colonisers, they wouldn't recognise native Australian fruits because they're very used to a different sort. Yeah. At night, Wiradri would sing stories of creation and the Palawa would sing and dance, feeling for the first time in years that they could live life the way they wanted. Robinson joined in these nightly gatherings to learn more about their lifestyle, but the convicts refused to be involved, setting up their own camp away from Robinson's camp and eating only their salted meat and damper and probably then getting scurvy. Like, just miserable buggers. Yeah. That's just... uh, to be fair, if I was, like, you know, some person from London who, like, got transported for stealing bread, then I go to Sydney and, like, there's a rum rebellion and then I steal some more and I fuck a sheep, I don't know, and then I get sent to Tasmania, I'd be pretty fucking miserable as well. But you could eat nice food and have a party. Yeah, I know, I know, but I'd be pretty, like, pissed <laughs> off. Like, I hear every convict who gets lost here ends up eating other convicts. I don't like this. But then there was that one guy who dressed in a kangaroo skin. By mid-March, the group had made it as far as Bathurst Harbour, just over halfway through their journey. They had yet to come across any Nanine for Robinson to civilise. What a funny coincidence that there were none there. Strange. Isn't it odd? Until suddenly, arriving at Callie's Basin, were ready spotted smoke in the distance. Troganini and Dre set off to find the Nanine who were nearby, but each time the two women got close, the Nanine would hide in the bush. And by the way, for our international listeners... Just again, the bush is the forest. They're not hiding in, like, one bush. Yes. They're, like, running into a thick forest that they know really well, and even this group don't know that well. Yes. So you can't chase after them. So Robinson was nearly successful in convincing a group of ten Nanine families to join him, but they fled when they sighted the group of convicts. Because they all had scurvy. Yeah. All their teeth are falling out, like, meh. (laughs) We're civilised. (laughs) Meh. My legs are all falling off. (laughs) Meh. (laughs) Meh. I've got syphilis. I have no nose. (laughs) John Batman. <laughs> we already suggested that the best way to capture the Nanine would be to round them up with guns. A suggestion that horrified Robinson, who believed that Wuredi was turning on his own. But though Wuredi was kin to the Nanine, he did not like them. It was after this suggestion that Robinson found out his entire party, including the convicts of the Nuanon, believed they were on a mission to capture the Nanine. So they responded with bewilderment, so the party, like... Um, the new Nanon responded with bewilderment when Robinson tried to explain that he merely wanted to befriend and encourage the Nanin to join him. It just shows how tunnel vision some of these people are with this, like, and I'm not targeting just Christians mm. here, but this sense of, like, here is my purpose, and everyone will understand my purpose, and I don't have to ask anybody about this. This is my purpose. And it also shows, too, this um, generalising view of First Nations people mm. in that they're all the same. They're all going to get on So they're all friends and... They are primitive, beautiful children. Yeah. They frolic naked in the like bush. Like, not understanding that these are different nations, different clans. Yeah. And in this section, we have different clans that are speaking a similar language, mm. but... They're not friends. They're not necessarily, you know, they're not the same group. Yeah. So, it's like, we talked, it's in the Taranora episode, yeah. actually, where it was like, the tribes couldn't unite, and so some would team up with the colonists to be mm. like, ha, we'll take, we will take the um, Nunani land... For ourselves, and the white people were like, you fucking what? <laughs> no! Sorry. You played yourselves. <laughs> Do you know the Irish clans in the Granier O'Malley episode? Yeah. Like, if you can team up, you might have a better chance of getting rid of yeah. the English. But it's they've got their teeth this, in. This very, like, tunnel vision view of not understanding the complexities of the land in which they've appropriated. Yeah. 
So, on March 25th, Robinson finally had some luck. Maybe he prayed really hard that day. The party came across two Indian men hunting, and Dre was able to convince these men to take Robinson's party to the rest of their group, which was about 30 people. That night, they all had a corroboree, which is like a celebration dance. Over the next few days, Robinson's group followed the Nanine, hunting during the day and holding corroboree by night. Until one night, already stole some of the Nanine's spears, and the Nanine no longer felt they could trust this group of strangers, especially Valid. that already guy. Valid guy. What do I fucking do? Good instincts. So the Nanine were like, later. They were like, plugging in, even though that's way wrong. <laughs> already was furious and couldn't understand why Robinson did not capture them. In the wines of Waredi and Kiktapala, and possibly even Triganini and Dre, they were captives of Robinson, and so didn't understand why he wouldn't also capture the Nanine. This belief that the Nanine were given special treatment soured the relationship between Robinson and his guide slash prisoners. Yeah, so in his mind, they're all companions on a lovely trip. La 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 la! And, and la, la, they were coming voluntarily because they loved him so much, and they thought he was such a great guy with this great civilization idea. And in their minds, they're like, this white man is forcing us to come with him. Alternatively, if we leave this white man, he will starve. We have to go with him. (laughs) Put it that too. So this state of affairs continued as the mission party made its way up the west coast. So in sort of, if you picture a map of Tasmania, (laughs) upside down triangle, upside down triangle. We've started on the east side, the right hand side, gone down the bottom Gone up a little bit, and now we're on the left. And I'm drawing a map with my hand that you can't see. That's and not Nicholas, what I'm laughing at. Why are you laughing at me? Beaver? Yeah. yeah. See, I'm a polite, civilised person who was not going to say that. I'm not civilised and I'm proud of it. All right. In case you're confused, the map of Tasmania can also be compared to the a pubic, vagina. The pubic zone, not the vagina. No, the that's right. The pubic right. zone. That's right. Yes. The triangle yes. of the map of Tasmania. Yeah. Yeah, the group made it to Cape Grim in northwest Lutruwita by mid-June where they learnt of repeated massacres by employees of the Van Diemen's Land company Sheep Runs, who relentlessly attacked local Palawa in retaliation for sheep stealing, with quotes. It's free real estate. While there, the mission party were joined by Pive, or Tanaminawait. Um, so he's often called Tanaminawait, but we're going to call him Pive. A 15-year-old Perilihoina boy who was working for Sealers, after previously being on the Sheep Runs. Robertson saw Pive as an as- asset to his party, and promised the boy that he would rescue Pive's brother and friend from the sealers if Pive joined him. However, Robinson planned to get the £5 reward offered by the governor for every adult captured. In September, Pive ran away, but was soon captured by a roving party. He waited in Launceston jail until Robinson rescued him and learnt that he was more vulnerable without Robinson. Which, when you think about it, is quite humiliating because this is your country. Yeah. And all of a sudden you can't go anywhere yeah. and escape into the bush without being protected by a clueless white... Invader. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to, like, an indigenous invader who's just, like, you know, having a bit of intertribal warfare. Yeah. Yeah. But that's... That's That's different! It's equals. Yeah. In that situation. Like, that's... It's the way things have been for thousands of years. Yeah. And they respect you, you respect them. Yeah. And you respect... You understand the laws of war as you have set them. Yes. So... In October 1830, the mission party had barely made it to Launceston on the north coast of Lutruwita. Treganini could barely walk because her legs were so swollen from syphilis. The party met with deep, was met with deep suspicion and animosity upon arriving in the city. October 1830 saw the beginning of the Black Line, which was determined to remove all the remaining Palawa from the island. Launceston looked more like an army camp than a town, with all able-bodied male colonists and convicts preparing to create a militia and join the Black Line. 
While the black line set off southwards, Robinson set off to the northeast coast, hoping to collect any remaining Palawap there before they were caught by the black line. Which they probably weren't, because it only got four people. Got four people. Robinson's mission had now also changed, even though he hadn't actually gotten a mission. Mm. He was on a mission from God. He was, it was dark and he was wearing He sunglasses. is not as cool as the Blues Brothers. Yeah, yeah. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. Since the governor wanted to remove all Palawa from the island, Robinson was no longer attempting to simply make contact and help civilize. Now he needed to find people and convince them to come with him so they could be exhorted off Lutrawita. Robinson was supposed to hand over any people he found to John Batman, but knowing of John Batman's violent tendencies and his preference for young boys, Robinson planned to hold anyone he encountered on Swan Island off the northeast tip of Lutrawita. So, in a way, he is now the anti-hero of this story in that he is not actively raping children. He's a complex dude. So Robinson told no one in his party his plans, even Truganini already, who what were a- his closest companions. <laughs> what a novelty! Oh, wait, he done that before. The party didn't come across any people until November, when they came across Manalajena, a leader in the Black Wars, which is what we covered in an episode on Taranara. Manalajena had heard of Robinson, and seeing the way that things were turning, had decided to cooperate. He and the five travelling with him had managed to slip through the Black Line twice, and had been shadowing Robinson's party for weeks. Which also, again, shows his bushcraft is just off the scale, because Robinson is travelling with Truganini and Waredi, who are... Ex- you know, they know country. Well. Ooh. Well, 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 well. How interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm. Jenna wanted to make a deal. Robinson's help getting Manalajena's four daughters back from Sealers in exchange for Manalajena and his the people with him going with Robinson. So as Robinson led the group to the coast where a boat waited to take them to Swan Island, he lamented that this would have been the perfect place for these people to live if only someone wasn't leading them to a boat to take them to Swan Island. <laughs> His self-awareness is non-existent. Mm. How nice. Anyway, um, when the group arrived on Swan Island, Robinson relaxed. There was now no way anyone could rudely run off in the middle of the night. Swan Island was ill-suited to life. It was small, the water was dirty, and the island was at the whims of the strong westerly winds that caused sandstorms. Robinson was shocked that his not-captive captives were unhappy at the prospect of staying on Swan Island. On November 9th, 1830, Robinson left Swan Island to rescue women from sealers on other islands, leaving Truganini, Wuredri, Manalajena and the others behind. Upon his return with Manalajena's wife, Robinson realised they could not stay on Swan Island. At the end of November, Robinson received some good news, for him, anyway. The black line had been disbanded after only managing to capture one man and a boy. Oh. And Robinson had been was being praised for his capture of 15 adults. So, the black line caught between two and four people. I'm assuming <laughs> they caught two boys and two women, which means it doesn't count. Yeah, that would make sense. Or, like, two, three yeah. kids and anyway. a man. Robinson wasn't content with this praise, Seeing fires on the mainland, Robinson decided to take Truganini, Waredi, Pagerly, and Kiktapola on another mission to find people still at large. His guides were overjoyed at the outing, happily hunting along the coastline and very happy to get away from the pit hole that was Swan Island. In mid-December, the group was joined by 11 Tyrelaw women from, taken from the sealers, including two of Manalajena's daughters. The Tyrelaw reunion was the occasion of great celebration, dancing and singing. Truganini enthusiastically joined the dancing, which horrified Robinson, who saw the dancers as aggressively sexual and depraved. He was further horrified when his guys enthusiastically paired up with the newcomers, with Kikatapola in particular having as much sex as he possibly could. Robinson reminded Kikatapola that as a good Christian man, 
he shouldn't be engaging in such debauchery. But Robinson realised he had no real say over the people that he saw as his inferiors. Mm. In January 1831, Robinson set out with Truganini, Kiktapala, Wiradri and Pageli for Hobart to show the governor how successful his mission had been compared to the Black Line. Seeing that the great Manala Jenna was to remain on Swan Island, Truganini saw herself as a privileged member of Robinson's party, believing that she would be given the same honours that Robinson would be. And also, she'd done all the work, so, like, she should. Mm-hmm. They are, great, it's horrible work, but someone... Anyway. They arrived in Hobart nearly a year after Truganini had first been taken on the mission, which took them around the entire coast of Hobart. Robinson was rewarded for his efforts with a 2,500-acre land grant, a salary increase of £250, which is 30000 Australian dollar dues today, and an also bonus of £100. Truganini and the other guys were, after a bit, given clothes they didn't want and a boat they never got to use because Robinson hired out on the Derwent River. Thanks. They stayed in Hobart for three months, living in an annex at Robinson's house and taking daily walks around the growing city. While walking, they were first met with animosity from the colonists, but soon they became an expected sight. While in Hobart, like all white people who worked with an Aboriginal person once, Robinson took the opportunity to present himself as an expert on all things First Nations. Meeting with the Aboriginal committee and arguing that all Palawa people in the settled districts should be placed under his care. Robinson, you see, had grand plans. He thought that they should set up an asylum on Gun Carriage Island, which is a small island in the Bass Strait, just under Flinders Island. Remember that name. Being surrounded by larger islands, Robinson argued, Gun Carriage Island would be protected from the fierce weather. But, so, if you haven't been down to Tasmania on the ferry, you probably don't understand just how rough the sea is down there. Though it's only a relatively short distance between the mainland, Australia and Tassie, the Bass Strait is actually one of the most dangerous bodies of water in the world. Yeah. Gun Carriage Island is right in the middle of that. There was a lone voice of dissent to Robinson's plans. The Chief Justice argued that it would be cruel to move the Palawa people to a small offshore island and separate them from their home and traditional lifestyle. His suggestion to make a treaty with clan leaders like Manila Jenna was not carried forward. Yeah, the one decent-ish person... The bar is low. The bar is low, but he crawled over it. Robinson understood where the Chief Justice was coming from, having seen firsthand how important the connection to land was to his guides. However, Robinson believed that cutting the First Nations people off from their land would be the only way to finally convert them to Christianity and save them from damnation. I love that Robinson is so clearly in dead, in in hell. So it's like... (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's in the bad place. On as Mar- he should be. As he should be. On March 1st, 1831, Robinson set off with Truganini, Wiredi, Padjali, Kikatapala, and another 17 First Nations people who had been in jail, hospital, or working for colonial families, as well as two convicts and six soldiers. These were those who would create the new settlement on Gun Carriage Island. Before they set off, Robinson, who was unhappy with the planned route of the ship, disembarked to complain to the governor and was left behind when the ship sailed without him. I have left people behind before, and it is hilarious. I love this, because he deserves it. (laughs) He deserves it so badly. Unfortunately, though, without Robinson on board to speak up for them, the First Nations passengers were left in miserable conditions. First, they were forced to sleep on deck, exposed to the freezing elements, and then they were forced to sleep. They were allowed to sleep in the hold, which was poorly ventilated. And after being forced to sit in their own waist down in the hold, they chose to return to the deck. The ship picked Robinson up at a penal station, and he didn't talk to Nicola <laughs> for about three hours because he was so pissed off about it. 
and then arrived at Swan Island to pick up the men and women left there a few months earlier. The ship then landed at Preservation Island, where most of the First Nations people were left, while Robinson went ahead to Gun Carriage Island with Truganini, Wurred, Rikiktipala, and the six soldiers. So by 1831, a small settlement of sealers had set themselves up on Gun Carriage Island, with cottages, vegetable gardens, pigs, goats, and chickens. When Robinson's group arrived, he promised Truganini and the others that these cottages would be theirs, believing that they would see this as a privilege. Robinson kicked out the sealers unceremoniously, and a week later, the rest of the First Nations people left on Preservation Island joined the group on gun carriage. Truganini and Wuredi were given one of the cottages. Almost immediately, Robinson took off to kick sealers off the other Bass Strait Islands in the area and rescue the Tyree Lori women. When he returned, entirely unsuccessfully, on the 30th of April, it was to find Truganini pleading that he take her and her family back home. They were unhappy on Gun Carriage Island and didn't trust the cottages, sleeping outside and refusing to enter. They knocked these units up in about two minutes. They're going to collapse in a few years. Can't you see the wobble in the wall? At least 15 people were extremely unwell, and to make matters worse, the sealers had returned, demanding their homes back. Look, I'm not normally on the side of the sealers, but like... <laughs> the irony, though. <laughs> yeah. Give us our land back, said the sealers to the indigenous stole. people. <laughs> I want it back. <laughs> then Robertson heard that there were still roving parties, including one headed by John Batman. No, not John Island. Batman. These roving parties were searching for the Stony Creek Band, a group of Palawa people that were charged with attacks on colonists, and who Robinson had been trying to find in the last months of 1830. Robinson was determined to beat the roving parties to it, and so set off again with his original guides for a new mission party. The new venture, of course, got off to a bad start when the group got stuck on Swan Island for 10 days with no supplies and terrible weather because you're in the Bass Strait. Back on Gun Carriage Island, the sealers had returned with the governor's permission and were claiming back the Tarilori women, most of whom chose to return to their captors. Manila Jenner saw this as a sign that Robinson could not honour his promises. He's like, I saw on a Bible and it's like, by now you should know what I think of that. <laughs> Finally, in late June, the party set out on the mainland to find and capture the Stony Creek Band, and also the Little River Band. Their progress was slow, with Wiradjuri dragging behind due to a mystery illness, which was probably syphilis returning for its final tertiary and often fatal stage. Their pace was further slowed by his guide's frequent stops to hunt for food, a task that Robinson thought was them being childish and unfocused rather than, you know, wanting to eat. And he clearly passes down, or passes back from... What Robinson saw is a lack of purpose, disobedience, and a lack of understanding of the importance and time pressure of their mission was, in fact, probably far more calculated. By continually running off to hunt kangaroos or gather eggs or pick fruit, his guides delayed the mission and by hunting as loudly as possible, they alerted the band they were hunting of their presence. It is also possible that they believed Robinson when he claimed he did want to be part of their clan and were trying to induct him into their way of life. And like, oh, look, baby, picked a kangaroo apple. Good job. Kind of, pretty much. Yeah. But yeah, so when, you know, like, you look at the earlier missions and it was like, oh, they kept not finding people. Yeah. Like, we know they were really good guides and hunters and trackers. They were good finders. They could have found mm. a lot more people. Yeah. And so, like, we don't know because we don't have their words. Yeah. But it is very likely that they were deliberately misleading Robinson as much as they could. And also kind of prolonging the missions because that was when they had a 
chance of freedom. Mm. Like, as opposed to being miserable on Gunner Courage Island. Let's keep looking for them. Yeah, if you're on a mission, yeah. you can you can go off and do what you want to a much greater extent. Yeah. So it's sort of a way of them kind of claiming a bit of agency. When Wiredi's condition worsened and he was unable to walk, he and Truganini stayed behind for the painful swellings in his legs to heal. Or he was like, ow, my legs, they really hurt. <laughs> Whoops. Truganini gathered abalone while Wiredi recovered and worried about the mission party. When Wiredi had improved enough to walk, they set off to join the others and were surprised to find the mission party had been joined by the Stony Creek Band. Manila Jenner, who Robinson had summoned from Gun Carriage Island to aid the search, had agreed to find the band if he would be allowed to stay on his own country. Robinson, increasingly desperate to prove to the governor that he was indeed the one true white man to control the Aboriginal people, agreed with Manila Jenner's deal while crossing his fingers behind his back. Manila Jenner had then persuaded the leader of the Stony Creek Band to come forward to Robinson in exchange for the same deal. So now Robertson had to figure out how to get everyone back to Gun Carriage Island when he promised he wouldn't take them back to Gun Carriage Island. In September 1831, the party returned to Launceston to a better welcome than last time. Soon they set off again for a new mission, finding the Big River People, the sequel to the Little River Band. A group there is no Little River Band. Uh, it's a band called the Little River Band. I know. That's the joke. They're not here. I know, I'm trying to find some humour. <laughs> Jesus Christ. But also... <laughs> So the Big River people were a group that comprised the survivors of the Lemuremere and the Paradorame clans. Again, the guides took as much time hunting as they could, determined to fail their task. After several months, however, the Big River people were finally found, or maybe Robinson just finally spotted them, <laughs> and they all returned to Hobart at the beginning of 1832. Now it was time for the next phase in the resettlement scheme. The governor had ordered that Gun Carriage Island should be returned to the sealers, and the new Aboriginal settlement should be on Flinders Island, which was just above Gun Carriage Island. Flinders Island was just as exposed and miserable, a barren wasteland with limited fresh water, which, you know, is a thing that's quite essential for living. Mm-hmm. So it's not really an ideal place to set up. Forty people were transferred to Gun Carriage Island, most of them already sick from the terrible conditions on Gun Carriage. In late February 1832, Robinson took Troganini and his other favourites to Flinders for a few weeks before returning to Lutruwita to continue to find more First Nations people to remove to the settlement. Their brief stay on Flinders Island, however, left most of the mission party sick with the flu or with dysentery. Fucking lost us. Which is what happens when you don't have clean water. Mm-hmm. The next few months of 1832 and 1833 were spent further in, spent in further travels around the main island, searching for remaining Palawat to bring to Flinders Island. At times, when travelling around the west coast, Robinson would leave any people he convinced to join him on Sarah Island, which is a convict settlement that is remembered for the particular cruelty of its conditions. Would leave any people he convinced to join him? So when Lead any people? No, leave. So when he's going around the west coast... If he comes across any people and he's like, you will join my group and we're going to go to Flinders Island. And they're like, yep, we'll go to Flinders Island with you. He's like, wait here on Sarah Island. Uh, okay. Yep. These journeys went similarly to the earlier ones, though the mission party did face the most hostility they had when trying to recruit people from the Takana. One night in September, Pivay was informed that the Takana, the party he was camping with, planned to kill Robinson and any others that were not their kin. You know, understandably. Except Truganini, who the Takana wished to keep as one of their own. Robinson dismissed the information, but at dawn, Takana warriors surrounded Robinson on his sleeping mat and raised their spears. The mission party dispersed, running in all directions to escape. 
Tragonini ran towards the river, which only an experienced swimmer could cross, and Tragonini was an experienced swimmer. Richard Robinson ran after her, realising his own helplessness against Atakana. Tragonini told Robinson to flee into the bush away from her, but he refused. As she reached the river, Robinson began frantically building a makeshift raft from driftwood and his own garters. Which is a beautiful Kinky. image. Robinson begged Tragonini to swim his raft across the river. Tragonini had to make a choice. Did she help Robinson escape and therefore stay under his dubious protection? Or did she turn around and try to build a life with the Tarkana and hope that they managed to stay free from the colonists' attempts to remove all Palawa from Lutruita? And she had to make this decision as Robinson shouted at her and Tarkana warriors ran towards them with spears. She made a decision. Truganini dove into the water and grabbed hold of the raft, pulling Robinson across the turbulent river. I feel like raft might be a bit of a stretch. Like, surely it's like two logs stuck yeah, together. Because I'm usually like, like a pontoon. <laughs> it's just like a stick. And he's yeah, just like... Yeah, and he's got his garter on it. Because I'm like, how fast can they run? <laughs> anyway. He he took a course. He take, he, he, he builds a really he quick raft. He did that like office, like that team building course <laughs> where you have to build a raft. He did Boy Scouts. Oh. Uh. The next day, Tregnini and Robinson saw the rest of their party across the riverbank, standing with the Tarkana and seeming as though they wished to remain. Robinson entreated his guides to return to him. Now they too had to make the same choice Tregnini had made, stay with Robinson or join the Tarkana, granted with less time pressure. After much deliberation, they built a raft and pagely swam them across the river. In the end, the possible protection of Robinson seemed a safer bet than the uncertainty of living with the Tarkana in an increasingly violent world. Tragonini's swimming abilities were to prove invaluable on these missions. Whenever the group needed to cross rivers, as most of the men could not swim, Tragonini, Padgley, and Plorinanupna would hold onto rafts of men and pull them across the river. On one occasion, when the Tarkana eventually joined Robinson in the middle of winter, treacherous current conditions meant that only one person could travel on the raft at a time. With 29 people, many dogs and all their supplies, Truganini and the other women had to swim back and forth in the frigid waters for hours. Truganini developed a fever and nearly died on the return journey, which also had horrible weather. By the time the group had arrived back at Sarah Island, which is where the people were kind of waiting temporarily before being moved to Flinders Island, people were getting very sick. Soon every adult Tarkana had died and many of the Nanini as well. Traumatised, the survivors boarded a ship to Flinders Island in October. During the first six months of 1833, Robinson had captured 66 Palawa people on the west coast of Lutruwita to take to Flinders Island. Only 14 arrived. The rest were dead by the end of the year. On February 3rd, 1835, Robinson claimed that he had removed all the Palawa people from Van Diemen's Land. The Hobart Town Courier called for donations to reward Robinson's hard work and he was celebrated by the colonists. He was also lying, though he probably didn't know that. It didn't matter. Though his claim was false, in practical terms, he had achieved what was wanted. The removal of so many Palawa that colonists need no longer to fear any disturbance from the original inhabitants of the island. Robinson was again paid generously for his efforts. Despite his original grand plans for Flinders Island, Robinson was reluctant to return to what was, by all accounts of people who visited, it fucking miserable. Instead, he set his sights on travelling to Nam, the bottom of the main mainland, the main mainland, New Holland, the area around modern-day Melbourne, which is the lands of the groups of the Kulin Nation. In 1803, after a few unsuccessful attempts to colonise the area, the Governor of New South Wales ordered Colonel 
David Collins, he of the street with all the designer shops today, to set up a colony with 300 convicts at Port Phillip Bay in order to prevent the French doing the same thing. Except they would have called it Port Philippe Bay. If you remember, it was to stop the French that they colonised Hobart. Yeah. (laughs) Which, you know, checks out if you know anything about British French history. Yeah. However, this settlement was quickly abandoned for Hobart. And it wasn't until 1834 that real efforts to establish a colony in Nam were picked up again. They'd be like, there's gold in these hills somewhere. I don't know where yet. In November that year... I like you gave me this line. I don't know if you did it liberally, but I enjoyed it. I didn't. In November that year, Edward Henty set up an illegal sheep run on the lands of the Gunjadmara. Henty was quickly followed by John Batman, who brought over a group of men to colonise the land around Port Phillip. So it's the same John Batman we were making fun of earlier, who has been running around the Trutla. Yes. Um, kidnapping, murdering, raping his way through the yep. people there. Yep. Governor Arthur proposed that Robinson take the people on Flinders Island up to the new settlement at Port Phillip to extend Robinson's friendly mission to the mainland. Robinson was in favour of taking the remaining Palawa to the mainland, be- believing that this separation would be the final stage in ending their connection to culture. He believed that, that being able to see their homeland from the mountains on Flinders Island meant that Palawa people kept grieving and kept dying from grief. Robinson was confident that if everyone moved to Nam, they'd just get over their grief and trauma and live happily ever after, because moving cities always just fixes everything. Robinson also worried that if people found out just how miserable conditions were on Flinders, he'd lose all that praise he was getting. Like, you can see the transition of his thinking in that originally he's like, we'll just move them to a small part of Lutrawida. And then he's like, oh, we'll move them to an island off there because that will separate them from their culture and then they'll be civilised. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, but they can still see Lutrawida. So Let's go to a different island, the really further. big one. Yeah. So he's just like, it's like, maybe the lesson you should be learning here is that moving is not going to change who people are. So over in Nam, by August 1835, opportunists were grabbing land left, right and centre. Including your ancestors, probably. I don't know where mine were at this point. Probably. Doing something shitty. No, I think they were up north. I think mine were in Dalesford. I think mine was still... No, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Ah. I don't care. Ah. Governor Arthur worried that You're this You're a terrible historian. <laughs> <laughs> Governor Arthur worried that this would lead to complete destruction of the Kulin peoples. Robinson again suggested that he take his guides to Port Phillip to enact a peaceful colonisation. Arthur agreed, but only if the Secretary of State gave his approval. In the meantime, Robinson and his guides, who'd been living in Hobart for about eight months at this point, had returned to Flinders Island. So this was the final promise broken. Robinson had promised his guides that they would be able to remain on country and not forced to live on Flinders. Now they saw that nothing he said could be trusted. Troganini and the other guides had attempted to negotiate with the colony to keep at least a sliver of their freedom, but they'd ultimately failed. Robinson, forced to remain on Flinders for now, and he's like, wow, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> Planned again to create the ideal Christian community. In the settlement of Wibbelina, he cr- attempted to create a little mini farming settlement and even renamed his guides. Trogadini became, for Robinson, La La Rook, named after a fictional daughter of the 17th century Mughal emperor. Which, you know, A, Edward Said is like, hmm, someone's calling my name, but also B, maybe, like, Robinson's starting to see himself as some kind of, like, Mm -hmm. king over these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Despite Robinson's attempts, Troganini was unsurprisingly miserable. She hated the sewing classes she was forced into, and she was bored. Five months after she arrived on the island, she was given a temporary reprieve, as she and the other guys were sent to collect the remaining Takana on the main island. 
the group, under the minimal guidance of one of Robinson's sons, managed to make the journey last 16 months and spent the time as they pleased, returning to their nomadic lifestyle. Oh, yeah, they're just around the corner. we got to keep going. Yeah, I can, oh, see tracks here. Yep. I know, oh, it looks oh. like they're going left. We actually have to go right. Oh, no, I think yeah. they went back. we better go back again. Yep. My legs are all swollen from Sevilus. While Troganini and the others enjoyed their temporary almost freedom, Robinson found out he would not be allowed to transplant the people on Flinders Island to the mainland, and he was forced to confront the fact that, though he thought he was saving these people, he had really sentenced them to death. And well, a cru- it's a cruel death. I would rather someone just shoot me. He confronted that uh, fact for about five minutes. Yep. Anyway. It certainly didn't stop him collecting the skulls of those that had died on the island as, quote, curiosities. Which seems like a good time to remind you that Australian museums still hold over 10,000 First Nations remains and over 11,000 sacred objects, and we're not even starting on the international museums. Give give them back. Just give it back, Give guys. them back. Give Please. Them back. I want them back. You don't want them. I want them. You can't have them! Traganini returned to Wabalena in July 1837 in good health, which was a stark contrast to the people at the settlement, 19 of whom had died while she was away. When shown to the latest houses, Traganini told Robinson that soon there would be no one left to live in them. It was clear that the relationship between Robinson and Traganini had changed. When the two went on a short trip to the other side of Flinders Island with the other guides, Robinson was left to fend for himself. No longer did they feel a duty to help him in return for his protection. They basically went, Alright. Fuck yeah. What are <laughs> you gonna fucking do? Figure it out, buddy. What are you gonna do? Take, by now? take us to another island? <laughs> I don't give a shit. This one sucks. Robinson returned sulking to Wabalena by himself, complaining about the guide's, quote, ingratitude, end quote. Truganini and the others refused to live the way Robinson told them to. So, despite deteriorating conditions, Robinson kept petitioning to be appointed the protector of Aborigines in Port Phillip. That's a title, protector of Aborigines. Yeah. So he did plan to bring all the people on Flinders with him when he was finally given the role, even though he promised they wouldn't have to move again. But anyway. but the Robinson New South- breaking a promise? I know. The Swiss family asshole. But the New South Wales governor refused, telling Robinson he could only bring one family. So Robinson did stretch his definition in order to bring Truganini, Waredi, Pive, Mobahina and Lakle, plus their wives and a few others, but still. The group arrived in Port Phillip on February 27, 1839. They arrived at a tent city on the southern bank of Birrarong, what we call the Yarra River, away from the area that would become Melbourne. The three Kulin Nation groups that lived around the Port Phillip area, the Wurundjeri, the Boonwurrung, or sometimes they're called the Bunurong, and the Watharong, had been decimated by colonisation, particularly through diseases brought by the colonists and during the Frontier Wars, which were still ongoing. When Truganini and the other Palawa first arrived... Dozens of Kulin people were living around the tent city in huts made of bark. They were very ill, and they often had very few provisions. This village was situated on an important ceremonial meeting ground for the Kulin nation groups, including the two other clans, the Jajawurrung and the Tungarong, who come from lands above Nam. Despite the colonists' village, the nation kept meeting for ceremonies, and many began to live on the edges of the town in order to find food, as their traditional food sources were being destroyed by grazing livestock. Roughly 500 Kulin people, mostly Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, scraped out a living by selling possum skins, lyrebird feathers, or more often, themselves. Truganini again was able to make some money selling woven baskets. So Robinson was highly offended to find that he was expected to live in a tent, and it was only after much blustery, don't you know who I am, complaints, that he was given a small wooden hut to live in. Despite the abject failure of his attempts to create a mission settlement on Flinders, 
Robinson believed that the best way to help the Kulon people would be to set up protectorate stations away from the city. You know what they say about trying the same thing and expecting different results. Yep. Faced with the enormity of the task of, quote, protection, Robinson all but abandoned the Palawa people he had brought with him. You can also bet they weren't... His intended use for them, which presumably would be yep. to act as, like, in tra- like um, ambassadors, doesn't work because they don't speak any of the same languages. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck, yeah. Yep. And he basically went, you're of no use to me anymore. Yeah. So... Like a good Christian. Yep. So the Palawa men often went out hunting to supplement their meagre food supplies. While already continued to hunt with the spear and a wadi, the others adopted guns as their hunting weapon of choice. And they were, by all accounts, very good shots. Which is, you know, foreshadowing. Just like on Flinders Island, Truganini was bored. In April 1840, when Robinson went on a mission without them, the Palawa guides left Nam. And then they were found down at the Mornington Peninsula and returned, but immediately Truganini left again. She was found by Morbohina, and they returned to Robinson's house. And again she left. And again. And again. Troganini had, for once and for all, made a break from Robinson and decided to do things her way. Robinson was again offended at the ingratitude of the people he had captured and forced to leave their home, and so he decided to send them back to Flinders Island, saying, quote, They were no use to me, and I wish to get rid of them, end quote. The governor refused to send the Palawa back to Flinders because, hey, cheap, free labour. But Robinson could not convince the Palawa to live at the Protectorate Station at Nari Nari Warren. Everyone's like, ah, Nari Nari Warren. Yeah. Plus, most of them weren't even around to be convinced because they'd all run away. In April 1841, Truganini, who was now only 27, which is younger, She's than, younger me, than us, which is fine, and Morboyina ran off together. At this point, Robinson washed his hands of them. But only metaphorically because no one washed their hands back then. Yeah. Hence all the dysentery. Traganini and Morbohina worked their way south, ending up at Karam Karam Swamp in May. In June, the couple were working at a sheep run on the Mornington Peninsula. They left the area in September, taking a gun and gunpowder. The same month, Traganini and Morbohina joined up with Pive and his wife, Florina Nanupna, as well as another woman, Maytepumina, who was looking for her husband, Lackley. Lackley was nowhere to be found, and stories were spread that he had drowned, that he'd travelled to New Zealand, or that he'd been shot by a colonist. By mid-September, the group, who we're going to call the Squad, for simplicity's sake. I hate it. I know you do. But many other group collective terms have connotations. Why don't we call them the Little River Band? <laughs> the Little River <laughs> No. We're not calling them the Little River Band. So, the, the Squad... Angie, the, the, the Swiss family Angie Robinson. <laughs> the Squad had set up camp on a small agricultural station in Western Port being run by two squatters, Samuel Anderson and Robert Massey. Anderson and Massey knew Truganini and the others and had gone hunting with the men in the past. They were happy to supply some flour to the group and had no issues with Pive and Moibohina when they took off with one of the squatter's dogs to hunt kangaroo. For their part, the squad were aware that the last reported sightings of Lackley were in the company of a squatter in Western Port. By the way, a squatter is someone who like showed up to the colony, a free person who shipped to the colony, yes. and was like, this is mine now! Yep. Like, that's literally... But instead of it being, like, a house, um, which is now where people squat, it would be like, you know this 10,000 acres? That's mm-hmm. mine now. And instead of the colonists who, who did the this is mine now part with the support of the government, the squatters kind of did it with less support. Yeah. So it was like, you got your colonists, and then you got your squatters. Yeah. Yeah. You got your colonist settlers. Yes. And your squatters. Yeah. Yeah. 
On the 29th of September, the squad left their camp on Anderson and Massey's Run and moved to camp near the hut of William Watson, an isolated settler who was mining for coal. And he was like, I keep finding these yellow lumps. Oh, this is useless. Whatever. Let's find that coal. Watson and his wife welcomed Troganini and the others, giving them tea and sugar. After they'd been camping for a few days there, Watson left for his coal mine. The squad packed up camp and went into the hut on the premise of returning a borrowed kettle. In the hut, Peeve looked for Watson's guns while Morbahina forced Mrs. Watson and her daughter out of the hut at gunpoint. After the women left, they collected all the supplies they could find, including food, blankets, an axe, and guns plus gunshot. Treganini and Mater Pohina swam Watson's wife and daughter over the nearby river and told them to make their way to Anderson and Massey's land. Loaded up with gear, they set fire to Watson's hut, and the squad made their way to a hidden spot where they could keep an eye on the hut. And the hut burned really well, because it was full of coal. No, it wasn't. He was very bad at finding the coal. Oh, okay. When Watson returned to his hut that evening with his son-in-law, Pive and Moibohina shot at the men, wounding both. The settlers, seeing their wives gone and their house burned down, made their way to the nearby run, where they found their wives unharmed. Massey sent for military reinforcements from the governor and sent two of his men and guns with Watson for a quote-unquote search party. Despite having attacked the Watsons, the squad stayed in the area, keeping low until October 5th, when Watson spotted Morbohina and shot at him. The shots didn't hit him, but they did hit his coat. <laughs> Focused as they were on the threat from Watson, the squad failed to notice a group of six whalers coming up from the south. We're whalers on the moon, we sing our whailing tune. No? No. Okay. I don't know what okay, you're talking keep going. about. That's fine. The whalers, unaware of the tense situation, were looking for the miners, and seeing a group enter the dunes in the distance assumed that that was who they were looking for. Two whalers went into the dunes to look for the miners, while the others entered a nearby hut for a good nap. Two shots were fired. Morbohina and Pive had both fired on the whalers, killing one and fatally wounding the other. While Morbohina kept watch from the top of a dune, the rest of the squad rushed to the bodies on the beach. Realising one was dead and one still alive, and neither men that the squad recognised, they returned to Morbohina with the bad news. He then returned down to the beach to finish off the wounded whaler. This turn of events was, to put it mildly, not good. The squad had killed strangers, and worse, had been seen by other whalers who had heard the gunshots. Believing they had seen miners hunting game, though, the other whalers retreated into the hut for some more zzzz. When their friends hadn't returned an hour later, though, they began to worry. As they went searching, suddenly the whalers were fired upon and soon found themselves face to face with Watson's search party. The two groups joined together to look for the missing whalers and found their bodies on the beach. While burying the whalers, Watson caught a glimpse of the squad in the distance on a sand dune and gave chase until he lost them in the scrub. But he did see a dog he recognised. It was the dog that Anderson, the squatter, had given the squad. After a few days hiding out in the coastal dunes, the squad began to retrace their steps along the coast, back to the Bass River. Most of their stolen goods they buried, but kept their guns. They had, however, run out of gunpowder, and so began raiding any huts they came across looking for it. On the 13th of October, a boat carrying 14 armed men landed in the mouth of the Bass. While the boat got stuck in the mud after the tide went out, another party of workers from Anderson and Massey rocked up. That night, as the workers' party, not communist, slept, Pive and Morbohina snuck up and shot at the men to scare them away from their supplies. While the workers crawled away through the trees, the squad took a coat, guns and 22 pounds, which they later burned. Over the next 10 days, they headed northwest, possibly back to Robinson 
or to Wiriti, who was working on a run up there. It was now late October. Truganini's legs were so swollen from syphilis that she could barely walk, and so the squad stopped to rest on the edge of Karam Karam Swamp on a station run by Michael Solomon. An advantage of stopping here was that Thomas Thompson, who had come over with them from Flinders Island, was working on the station, and so he could provide them with food while they hid. Solomon, however, learned of their presence and proposed a deal to Morbohina. If Morbohina brought Solomon all the stolen items, Solomon would buy it, and everyone could go on their merry way. Morbohina said, sounds good, I'll just go get the goods now. When he left, Solomon immediately raced to Melbourne to alert the commissioner, but Morbohina wasn't stupid, and the squad left in the night, taking Thomas Thompson with them. Truganini still struggled to walk, and their going was slow. By the 30th of October, with a group of policemen being led by Boonwurrung truckers on their trail, the squad made a daring daylight raid on workers' huts to try and replace their dwindling ammunition. In this, they were successful, finding eight canisters of gunpowder, two shotguns and two pistols. These they took, as well as a dog. On October 31st, they risked a fire to cook some kangaroo and tea, but the policemen weren't far behind. Hearing horses and gunfire, the squad ran towards the swamp. There, their pursuers were unable to follow, with their horses getting stuck in the bog. The policemen attempted to continue the pursuit on foot, but soon they too were stuck in the bog. And hopefully they then turned into Australia's bog bodies. On the 2nd of November, the squad came across two convicts. Having a good old chat, the squad learned that the convicts were all alone, and they were the only two people living in a nearby hut. So that night, Pive and Mobohina returned to replenish their supplies at gunpoint. The two fired on the hut while the convicts, which we're going to call Bert and Ernie, hunkered down in the hut, firing back between holes in the wall. Oh gee, Bert, I don't know about this. But then it went quiet. As the sun rose, Pive and Morbohina cautiously approached the ominously silent hut, waiting for Bert and Ernie to fire again. But the hut was empty. The convicts had escaped out the back, taking their guns and leaving behind so little shot powder as to make it almost useless. Escape route out the back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Gunshots out the front. (laughs) Rocking champ. On the 4th of November, the police returned with four Bunwarung trackers. The same guys as before? We don't know. In the distance, they could hear the squad's dogs barking and the firing of guns while Pive and Mobohina hunted, but they still couldn't get close. The police were afraid of the squads, knowing that all five had guns and all five were crack shots. By November 8, no closer to finding them, the Boonwurrung truckers then refused to go further south into the lands of the Kurnai in Gippsland, because they were um, having a bit of a tough tiff at the time. Alternatively, they were like, yeah, we, um, we're having a big fight with the Kurnai. They're uh, our enemies. Uh, yep. I just don't feel like going to Gippsland. Does anyone... For the next week, the squad hunted while Truganini, still barely able to walk, laid low. But their ammunition was running out. They set their sights on the Anderson homestead once again. During the day on the 17th, the squad kept watch on the house, noting the comings and goings and realising that there were only three servants at home, an old couple and a young woman. With this information in hand, they decided to risk another midday raid. Mobohina, politely, at gunpoint, asked the servants to wait outside. The young woman attempted to run back for her baby, but Pive politely, at gunpoint, told her to stay with the others and her baby wouldn't be harmed. While Pive stood guard, Morbohina raided the homestead for guns, clothes and food. These acquired, the squad retreated. But not for long! That night, when the male workers returned, like the, the gentlemen workers, not just like posties, 
Um, shout out to all <laughs> our posties. I love the posties. They work shout out to John. Hi, John. Number you, one fan, you're John. You're a good dude. We love you, John. Yeah. <laughs> that night... I can't do this. That night when the male, human male, workers returned, Plona Nupna and Major Pamina returned, digging up potatoes from the garden and stealing chickens and eggs from under the nose of the men. But their pursuers hadn't given up. From the top of a hill, the squad watched as the police reinforcements arrived. Nine soldiers, nine police, three squatters who volunteered, so you know they're bloody great examples of humanity, the commissioner and his men, and seven men from different Kulin Nation groups, all of whom were armed with guns. They all also had their arms. They did, but all of them had... Well, actually, we don't know this. They may have all... They, we they, don't know. They all had at least one arm because they could carry a gun. Yep. And that's that. That's all we can know. It's not written down. It's not. The squad decided to return to the site of their killing of the whalers. <laughs> what, a, what a nice place that was. Let's head back there. <laughs> Lovely scenery. It was a slow journey as Truganini's legs were painfully swollen, if you haven't got that point by now. Whose legs were swollen? I think it was Truganini's. Ah, okay. Yeah. Plus, the squad had a ridiculous amount of stolen goods that they're trying to carry with them. They had a sack of potatoes, multiple bags of flour, which is not like the one kilo bags you buy in, yeah, in the like shops today. Yeah, a sack It's a of sack flour. of flour. Sugar, tea, tobacco, cloaks, blankets, six shotguns, many pistols, canisters of shot powder, bags of shot, ingots of lead and bullet moulds. Which is basically how I pack for a weekend away. Yeah, it's very annoying. Yeah. Sorry about you that. should see it trying to get the airport security. <laughs> but our plane's leaving soon. Why have you got bullet bolts? No reason. <laughs> you don't need to know, don't but we're going it. to the US. I'm don't a historian, question. trust me. Ah, it's okay, I'm a historian. So they quickly abandoned the potatoes and some of the clothing and guns and made it across the mouth of the Powlett River just as the tide was rising. This timing delayed their pursuers who were unable to cross until the tide retreated. The Kulin trackers could tell the squad were struggling. They were dragging their guns, which means they're losing their strength, and the pursuers had found evidence of the squad melting lead for musket balls in a campfire. That night, likely knowing it was their last night of freedom, the squad lit a fire, uncaring that the smoke would give away their position, and there they slept. At dawn, they were awoken by a single gunshot. They were surrounded by 30 men. Pive, Morbahina, Plorananupna, and Metapumina ran off into the bush, but Truganini could barely walk, and so stayed hidden. The colonists fired. Shots flew in all directions and a dog was killed. A shot grazed Morbahina's head, but that was it. Very quickly, all of the squad except Pive were captured. Promising that he wouldn't be shot, the women were persuaded to call for Pive to come out, and in response to their cooey, he did. Their audacious raiding was over. Now to tie up the loose ends. Truganini told their captors where the whalers' bodies were buried and how it had happened. After saying only, we thought it was Watson, who they had raided first, Moibahina and Pive refused to speak. On the 26th of November, Truganini and the squad arrived back in Nam, this time in chains. Moibahina and Pive were accused of murder and sent to trial while the women were charged as accessories before and after the fact. But why had all this happened? What had driven the previously chill group to become essentially bushrangers? Let's all take a minute to think. I don't know what it could have been. Who knows? It's a mystery. But apart from all the theft of land and indiscriminate killing of First Nations Australians and being forced to move to a different continent... And watching and all your friends and family die... Watching all your friends and family die... And putting up with Robinson the dickhead and... You get, so many things. Apart from all that. Apart from that, it was on the 2nd of December... That Robinson, remember that guy, he decided to give a shit. 
and he visited Mobohina Pive. And there and it was there that Mobohina finally explained what had sparked their first attack on the Watsons. The squad believed that Watson had killed Lackley, their friend and Metapomina's missing husband. But at the trial, none of this explanation was given, either in the squad's defence or as evidence of motive. Robertson spoke in the squad's defence, calling the men loyal and honest, yet he was most concerned with exonerating the women, particularly Truganini. She'd saved his life many times, so maybe it was time for him to return the favour. It's the very, very, very least he could do. He understood that no matter what was said, it was almost certain that Mobohina and Pive would be charged with murder, but the women had a chance... And so Robinson told the court that the women had no free will and were, quote, in absolute thraldom, end quote, to the men, which was bullshit, but it did sway the jury. It kind of, like, swings towards the colonist views of gender as well. Exactly. Yeah. Even today, people are like, oh, the only reason she, like, murdered for him was because mm-hmm. she loved him so much. Like, some, let women. Murder. Let women have murderous agency. Yeah. Oh, no. It was more when um, women were going over to join ISIS back in, like, 2015. Yeah. So they're going over to be jihadi brides. They've fallen in love with a man over there and they want to go. It's like, maybe, also, they just want to go over to join the fight for Islamic mm-hmm. State. Again, this isn't a positive thing. It is just a fact of humanity that anyone yeah. can be capable of terrible things mm-hmm. and good things and things that are, you know, terrible, but quite clearly having very understandable motives and reasonings behind yep. it. Yep. Yeah. And you've also got, like, racial underpinnings of these assumptions, too, mm-hmm. in that, like, of course it's the savages that, you know, the man are controlling the women. Yes. Unlike us, we don't control our no. women. No. No, you can't vote and you can't leave the house. Traganini, Plurinupna, and Metapamina were all acquitted of all charges, but the men were found guilty of murder. The jury recommended leniency, but on the 22nd of December, the, the judge decided they would be hanged. The women were released to Robinson's care to his annoyance. On the 20th of January 1842, Melbourne City would see its first executions. Between four and five thousand spectators turned up to watch. Truganini, Plorinanupna and Maitapanina stayed away. Morbahina and Pibe were the first people executed in the new city. Robinson was present at their burial, and again this is the last indignity because they cremate their dead in the Trudor. Mm-hmm. And and then Robinson effectively washed his hands of the people who had been his companions for over a decade and saved his life multiple times. Traganini did not appear in his journal from the day she ran away with Mobohina. Doesn't mean he didn't think of her, because sometimes people don't write everything down in their diaries or newspapers. Jeffrey Blaney. But. Punk ass bitch. But. Even though, like, yeah, he probably did think of her at some point. But she was, he essentially went, I'm done with that. Because he, I am she, no longer the protectorate. Yeah, she yeah. appeared in his diaries a lot mm-hmm. previously, uh, like significantly compared to other women, other Palawan women he was travelling with. Um, Truganini was the one most referenced. Um, and then, yeah, when after the day she ran away with Mubahino, she did not appear at all. Like, wow. not even a footnote or a sentence. Mm. And so that's, I feel like, very telling of this is the point where. I, have, I do not care anymore. For Robinson, he's like. She is no longer doing anything of value for me. Mm. I can't. I no longer have any use for this woman, so she is dead to me. Yeah, kind of thing. Like that's fucked up. Yeah, this guy that you know was such an influence on her life, like forcing himself into mm. her life, was just like, oh well, now you're no longer of use to me. I'm not going to talk about you. So on the eighth of July, eighteen forty-two, the expat Palawa people were deposited back on Flinders Island. Conditions at Wabalena were even worse than when Truganini had left. Just as she had before leaving for the mainland, Truganini refused to follow any efforts to be civilised. 
Very quickly, she and Maitapur Minor hooked up with the sealers from Cape Barren Island, and they would leave Flinders Island for days or weeks at a time. As conditions at Flinders deteriorated, the decision was made to move to an abandoned penal station at Oyster Cove on the main Lutruwida Island and opposite Lunawana Alona. 46 people, including Troganini, were moved to Oyster Cove in October 1847. Troganini was now back close to her homeland, but conditions there were not much better. The penal station was abandoned because it sat on a salt marsh and conditions were constantly damp, damp and cold, or damp and hot, with mosquitoes. Alcoholism was rampant among the population and diseases like dysentery were common. So over the next few decades, these difficult conditions proved fatal for most of the residents. Between 1847 and 1853, 27 people died. By 1862, there were only eight people left. During this time, Truganini would often take a boat over to Lunawana Alona to dive for abalone, mussels, oysters and crayfish. At other times, she and her friend Dre, who she'd reunited with when she came back to Flinders Island, would go on months-long hunting trips across Lutruwita, but these ended when Dre died in 1861. So also, like, Dre's like, hey, what have you been up to? And Truganini's like, sit down. <laughs> <laughs> sit down, my legs are swollen. Dre was her final connection to her people, and Truganini isolated herself after her friend's death. Truganini relied on the family of John Strange Dandridge, the Oyster Cove supervisor, for support and friendship, but she saw the way the winds were blowing. As the population at Oyster Cove dwindled, colonists began desperately seeking First Nations skeletons for scientific study of a dying race. Air quotes where you need them. Greys were robbed and skeletons were traded in underhanded deals. Truganini was terrified her own body would meet the same fate. In March 1869, while fishing with her friend the Anglican minister Henry Atkinson in the deepest part of the channel between the mainland and Lunawana Alona, Truganini pleaded desperately with Atkinson to, quote, Bury me here, it is the deepest place. Promise me. Promise me. End quote. Of course, that didn't happen. By 1872, Truganini was the only remaining person living at Oyster Cove. She moved in with the wife of Dandridge and spent her final years living in Hobart. There, she was often seen as a curiosity, walking around the town with Mrs Dandridge, dressed in a dark dress with a red turban in which she always had a pipe tucked. On May 4th, 1876, Truganini went into a coma while tucked in comfortably in a pile with her dogs in front of the fire. On the 7th, she died. Her body was buried in secret. Two years later, her final nightmare came true. Her body was exhumed and for the next 70 years, her skeleton was studied and placed in various displays, including at the 1888 Royal Exhibition in Melbourne and the Tasmanian Museum from 1904 to 1947. It was finally removed from display after mounting complaints, but it wasn't until 1976, 100 years after her death, that Truganini's body was cremated and scattered on the channel as per her request to Atkinson. And though there have been attempts across the last hundred and so years for people in Tas for Indigenous groups in Tasmania to reconstruct their language, it is still a reconstruction and a reconstruction of culture and place names. And there's so much knowledge there that we've lost that we'll never get back. We can be found on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Don't put that in. How do you, like, end an episode like yeah, this? Yeah, I, I, I got that vibe. That's why I said that stuff. That's literally why I stopped trying. Yeah. Um, so this is a story of immense fortitude and immense, immense apocalyptic loss. Mm. Because for a lot of Indigenous people, especially the young ones, I think, young people, um, they do understand the day Cook arrived or the day, you know, people arrive at Tasmania. That is the day of the apocalypse beginning yeah. for some. Of course, 
views vary in the same way that views vary across every cultural group and community yep. around the world. But it, in a way, those people who are you know in Tasmania and moving through it with Robinson, they're so they are walking through an apocalyptic scenario. Yep. What else are you gonna do? And it's like it's a very to me. It's sort of like a cope. Like this is a good example of the way people cope with the horrors. In a way, like in our podcast, we're often like women doing cool stuff. Yay! Not this season, actually. This season's been a bit like it's like either we don't know, (laughs) we don't know, comma she was married to Leon Trotsky. We don't know. She was probably Germanic, but we don't know. This is what we know because of a man. She was a racist, but also a communist, (laughs) comma. Um, But like we often, you know, you think of. Like, when you tell people, oh, I do a podcast about women in war, they're, they're going to think of, like, really active roles. Nancy Wake is yeah. the, the one I get a lot. Yeah. Um, which I still haven't written, even though I actually read the book. So, like... Hi, Peter. You know, that's what people are thinking of. And it's sort of... I think people wouldn't necessarily see this as a woman in, in war, but it is, because it's, you know, it's a war against First Nations Australians. Um, and it's this is how one woman, Truganini, dealt with that. Yeah. And people might see it as sort of like a oh, she sold out and she helped the white guy or something. What else are you going to do? But, like, what are you going to do? What else are you going to do? And, like, you know, that you could, we can... We don't have Treganini's words. We don't have the words of her compatriots. But, we like, but you can kind of see agency, if you read between the lines, in how they act on the missions and stuff. So... I'm thinking about Fanny Cochran Smith again. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She pops up in the biography. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Because um, yeah. she's the, the other last full-blooded Tasmanian Aboriginal with all the quotes around it. Yeah. That we mentioned in our Taranara episode. Yeah. So, obviously, as we've mentioned when we talk about um, minority groups or groups who have been, you know, historically shat upon by, like, the majority groups and those in power, let us know if we've crossed a line today or said anything that you disagree with or you would run counter to. That's totally chill. And we really appreciate all forms of feedback. That's really, really important. Yep. Um... We please tell us if we're idiots, like genuinely, will, not even idiots, well-meaning fools. I yeah. think most, even though we we live on the internet and it's like very ag- aggressive and like pit pylons, most people do understand that like intentions do count for something, um, but they don't count for everything, as Robinson proved. Because even though he had good intentions, he was a fundamentally evil man. And in a way, to me, those kind of people are more evil than like yeah. a sealer. Like I am going to go kidnap some woman and like, rape her. Yeah, like because they know it's wrong. Robinson. I hate him more because he was like, I'm doing a good thing, but you're not. You're yeah. patting yourself on the back and making things worse. You know, he like slept soundly at yeah. night. Yeah. He genuinely thought he was a good Christian and you're like, that's worse. Because I have so many good Christian, good religious friends and they never sit there thinking, I'm a good Christian. No. I'm going to push my Christianity on people. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what a, what an episode. Um, what a fun way to come back. Have a Sunday night. Yeah. So we would like to thank you all for your patience. While thank you. Well, I, I got the spicy flu. I wasn't going to say it was you. I was going to loosely imply it was me, even <laughs> though I haven't had it yet. Touch wood. I, I got it at a conference. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't get drunk at conferences, kids. Um, and most of the historians of Australia actually all got it in the same week. So that was quite funny. Yeah. So don't get drunk at conferences, kids. Um, <laughs> if you are eligible for your fourth dose, please get your fourth dose. I had it. Um, it has minor side effects, as most other people would have noticed with the other do- boosters. Yep. Um, yeah. Like all vaccinations? Yeah. Yep. We can be found on the on Twitter. On the internet. The Facebook. 
the in... Google. Just Google Women of War podcast. Yeah, you'll find us. We're there. Um, I, if you would also like to suggest a Women of War, feel free to email us. Yes. The email details are on the website, womenofwarpod.com. Um, we do have a massive list of people, but we're always willing to hear about more, especially people from minority groups, people who, women who might have had a disability. Um, you know, we're, looking, we're always on the lookout for more people to learn yeah. about. There is, there is no upper limit on how many women we want to cover. So many bitches. So many. The list of bitches must That grow. is literally what it's called at the we Google Drive. We should not put that in there. <laughs> <laughs> and obviously we do, ta- we do like to look at, you know, trans women and gender non-conforming women. The only rule is that they identified as a woman. Mm. Um, yeah. Anyone and every- everyone is yeah. welcome. And any feedback, any point, good or bad, we love to hear it. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. So I mean, that was a that was a good episode, Hannah. I know how difficult these kinds are to write. So it's, it's so hard because like we try and have a fun vibe, and then you're writing this, and you're like, "This is not a fun vibe." Genocide. It's not a fun vibe. Um, yeah. So, uh, thank but you I think listening. it's an important, yeah, important vibe. So yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening, um, and we hope to see you in two weeks. Yes. Yes. Well, we hope you hear us in two weeks. Yeah. We'll never see you. I, we always say that. So Unless you send us a selfie, but that would be creepy, so don't. No, feel free. Feel free. <laughs> right, I, I'm, I'm Nicola. That was Hannah. Uh, uh, I'm Hannah. Yes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Have a good week. Two weeks. Pybus writes that Truganini is often seen, sorry, often, quote, seen through the, I don't know if she was going to be British there for a second. <laughs> Pybus writes that, how do you do a Tasmanian accent? You fuck your sister. <laughs> <laughs> that was a coloniser thing. All right. She's allowed to say that. <laughs> she fucked oh, her my sister. My family's from Tasmania. It's okay. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So they've gone, they've gone from the right inner hip to the left inner hip <laughs> while dipping down the bottom for a little while. They went by the clit, but Robinson oh couldn't find God! it. Oh my God! Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> Where is yours? <laughs> What's wrong with you? You need to go to a gynecologist. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, <laughs> Just going in the end. <laughs>